As we continue our journey through Mark's gospel, we come this morning to Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. I encourage you to take out your own Bible or a pew Bible and turn there. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 64 of the New Testament section. Verse 15 kind of functions as a transition verse. I'll be looking, we'll read the whole thing, but we'll be looking at the first half of verse 15, uh, 1 through the first half of 15 this morning. As we prepare to hear God's Word, would you please pray with me now? Through your word, O God, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, bring us ever closer to our Savior. By this reading of your word, prompt our hearts to offer you sincere thanks in word and in deed for the great gift of our salvation. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. So again, Mark 15, beginning at verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. Then the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate asked him again, have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the festival, he used to release a prisoner for them, anyone whom they asked. Now a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. Then he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Pilate spoke to them again. Then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Pilate asked them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the the sun rose on a new day, the Friday that we call Good Friday. But the new day held no hope for change for our Lord The injustices of the previous night would continue into this new day. Mark's account, you'll notice, of these events leaves Peter behind. We must assume that the new day held no light for Peter either. And even before the first rays of the sun broke over the horizon, the quorum of the Sanhedrin that had hastily tried Jesus through the night is now likely joined by more members of the council for yet another last-minute consultation. So several things are made clear here at the beginning of Mark 15. First of all, part of the chief priests and elders and scribes' motivation for trying Jesus in the middle of the night was this looming deadline of daybreak. So the way it worked was this, regional Roman magistrates like Pontius Pilate 
usually started dealing with the affairs under his governance or their governance and hearing cases at the crack of dawn. And then they knocked off work by noon or even earlier. So the Jewish authorities needed to have Jesus and their case against Jesus before Pilate by sunrise. Or they might miss their window of opportunity to finally do away with this guy who was such a thorn in their side. Now, we we might also wonder, well, why did they need to bring Jesus before Pilate at all? After all, they had tried him the night before. They had declared him guilty of blasphemy, and blasphemy is a capital offense according to the Old Testament law. So according to their verdict, they're the ones with the authority, the law actually dictated that Jesus should be stoned to death. There was just one problem. The Roman Empire had taken away from the Jewish authorities the power of the sword, or in this case, the power of the stone. Like in most occupied territories in the Roman Empire, the local authorities in Israel, it was the Sanhedrin, they were still able to try cases according to local custom and local law, and they were able to, allowed to administer punishments in most cases. And, and that was the case because regional Roman prefects like Pilate were not actually given any secretaries or administrative assistance. So if he and his fellow prefects wanted to knock off work by noon, they actually had to hand over quite a bit of legal work to local authorities and officials. Now, no doubt the local authorities felt rather good about having at least some control over the local matters. But Rome fiercely guarded the authority to sentence criminals to death and to carry out the execution. So Rome wanted to make sure that people sympathetic to the Roman cause and occupation were not put to death by local authorities, and they wanted to make sure that they could put to death insurrectionists and traitors against the Roman cause. So the chief priests, elders, and scribes, Mark has made clear they've been looking for Jesus' death. They need Pilate. They need Pilate to condemn him to death and carry out the sentence because they can't do it. The problem is they have declared him guilty of blasphemy. Now, while that verdict merits death according to the Old Testament law, It does not merit death according to Roman law. Frankly, Pilate couldn't care less if all the people in his jurisdiction are blasphemers. Or, or for that matter, if they all followed the Mosaic law meticulously, couldn't care less. His job is to ensure that the locals remain appropriately submissive to Roman rule and to keep the taxes flowing to Rome. That's his job. If he can do that by noon and then get in a round of golf in the afternoon, all the better for him. The piety or the impiety of the Jews, though, as long as it doesn't bubble up in some way into riots or unrest, literally none of his concern. In fact, all of the historical records indicate that Pilate actually hated the Jews. He was openly anti-Semitic. When he was awarded his position as prefect in Judea, he brought in Roman standards 
with pagan graven images and symbols on them, and he had them posted in, set up in Jerusalem very intentionally in order to offend the Jewish religious sensibilities. So the, the Jewish council here, the Sanhedrin, has a problem. They have decided that Jesus is guilty of a crime that Pilate, the man with the actual power to execute criminals, wouldn't care about at all. Or, or in fact, you might actually be quite happy about it. Hey, here's the Jew who's blaspheming. That's kind of cool. So they, they had to have this crack of dawn consultation that we find in verse 1 to decide how they will present the case in new terms to Pilate. So they had been spitting on Jesus, they'd blindfolded him, they'd been hitting him, commanding him to prophesy, then they beat him. Now, having made their consultation on the charge that they would accuse him of before Pilate, they bind him, they lead him away, and they hand him over to Pilate, just as Jesus had predicted. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. He's now in Gentile hands. So it worked like this. The accused was not brought before the judge, in this case the prefect, Pilate, by a prosecutor from the state. That's the way it would work for us, right? Have a trial, the, the state's going to prosecute it. It's not the way it worked. There, there was no state prosecutor. He was brought by those who accused him. And likewise, the lawyer, we find, has no or the defendant, Jesus, has no, no lawyer to defend him. You can't go hire one. state's not going to provide one. Witnesses could come forth for both sides, and the defendant could, and the defendant normally would, speak on his own behalf. But the Roman prefect heard the accusations, heard the witnesses for both sides, then gave the verdict. He functioned as the judge. He functioned as the jury. And then immediately either released or carried out the punishment, whatever the punishment was going to be. So Pilate's first question here reveals to us the charges that the chief priests, elders, and scribes decided on in their consultation and now brought against Jesus before Pilate. Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Now, that might seem, at least initially, very much like what the high priest had asked Jesus earlier in the night. Are you the Messiah? But it is, in fact, a very different question. And the difference indicates the manner in which the Sanhedrin has altered the charges in order to get Pilate interested in hearing the case. If they had come and said, it's guilty of blasphemy, Pilate would have said, go home, I don't care. They need him to hear the case. So the chief priest had asked Jesus, are you the Christos? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? That word Christos had a lot of meaning for the Jewish authorities and the Jewish people. It has a lot of meaning for us. But it didn't mean the same thing, perhaps it didn't mean anything really, to the Roman magistrate, to Pilate. He couldn't care less if someone claimed to be the Messiah or not. He did, however, care if someone claimed to be a king, a basileus. That's what actually Pilate asks him, not Christos, but Basilos, king, king of the Jews, king of whatever. He doesn't, that word king is going to mean something to Pilate. Only the emperor held the power to confer kingship. Yes, puppet kingship. 
Only the emperor had the power to confer kingship to anyone in any of his occupied territories. A man who proclaimed himself to be king would be inherently guilty of high treason. And that, friends, is the shift. The Sanhedrin's early morning consultation led them to alter the accusation from blasphemy to high treason. To the Jewish rulers, Jesus was a false prophet who admitted outright that he was the Messiah, God's anointed king from the line of David, who would, by their thinking, would lead people, because he's a false prophet, he would lead people into apostasy. And more importantly, frankly, for the chief priests, elders, and scribes, he would undermine their authority. That's what's really going on here. But they had to convince Pilate that Jesus was a threat to him, to Pilate. If nothing else, that he might make life difficult for him and perhaps cause him to miss his afternoon golf game at the Jerusalem Country Club. And the easiest way to convince Pilate that Jesus was a threat to him was to convince Pilate that Jesus was a threat to the emperor and to the empire. They would accuse him of high treason. So Luke's gospel actually fills us in with some of the specifics of their accusation. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is the Christ, comma, a king, a basileus. So he's got the, both words there, but it's that second word. So the charges of misleading Israel and forbidding them to give tribute to Caesar, of course, they're completely untrue. Jesus alone, in our eyes, they, you know, they thought one thing, but Jesus alone rightly led Israel, unlike the unfaithful shepherds who are now accusing him before Pilate. And Jesus explicitly taught his followers to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, outright lies. Nevertheless, Pilate caught the distinction at the end. Christ, a king. So Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Now you'll notice here that Jesus' answer is not as straightforward as it was to the high priest. When the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah? He said, I am. But here, he says, you say so. He was and he is indeed the king of the Jews, but not in the way Pilate thought it or meant it. In, in his gospel, John gives a fuller account of Jesus' response that actually clarifies the distinction that Jesus less than straightforward answer implies. So in John's gospel, we hear Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So Pilate and his ilk couldn't conceive of any type of kingdom or, or any other kind of king, and they certainly could not conceive of a of an anointed king of the one true God whose reign originated in heaven but would find its fulfillment through a downward descent through incarnation and suffering and death. That's incomprehensible to Pilate. And nevertheless, Jesus was the king of the Jews and he could not deny it. And his time had come. So even though the chief priests kept up their full-court press of accusations, most of it false, like what we heard there, Jesus remained silent, not even offering his own self-defense. 
Again, Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled in real time. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. As Mark scholar William Lane put it, surrounded by unbelief and hostility, he manifested the exalted, sublime silence of the suffering servant of God. That's who he was. Surely what amazed or what astonished, surprised Pilate was the unusualness, not just of Jesus' demeanor, but the unusualness of the the whole idea of Jesus' behavior. What man accused of a capital offense, and no less a capital offense that will result in death on a cross of all things, what man in such a situation stands before his accusers and offers no self-defense? It would have been an entirely new experience for Pilate. Again, completely incomprehensible. Now, people often wonder about what happens next, and some people even question the historical truthfulness of it. Why would Pilate, who is known to history, not just from Scripture, but from all of the other historical evidence, who is known to history as nothing but a ruthless, uncaring tyrant, why would he lift a finger to advocate for Jesus' release. I, I mean, everything we know of him, his thought would be, well, what's another dead Jew? No big deal. The answer actually comes in verse 10. So there it says, he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. So Pilate had actually figured out that the charges of high treason were trumped up. He knew that Jesus wasn't really an anti-imperial insurrectionist. Pilate had no interest, and here's the thing, he had no interest in doing the bidding of the chief priests if he didn't have to. He was in charge, not them, and they needed to be reminded of that constantly. He might even derive some pleasure from from seeing them infuriated by his refusal to do their bidding. Matthew's gospel adds yet another detail. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with the righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So, Pilate has nothing to lose and everything to gain. He's going to gain a happy wife and miserable chief priests, elders, and scribes by releasing Jesus. In other words, Pilate's behavior actually makes perfect sense from what we know of the man and what we know of the situation. What Pilate didn't plan for, though, was the crowd. When the crowd shows up while he's in the middle of Jesus' trial and they're asking him to extend amnesty to a prisoner, which was his custom during the Passover festivities, he asks if they would like for him to release to them the king of the Jews. And he probably knew that the use of that title, king of the Jews, for this man Jesus would infuriate the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes even more. Come back to that later. Now, of course, he he should have guessed that given a choice between the man who claimed his kingdom originated from heaven and who wasn't interested in fighting Rome, given the choice between that man and an actual insurrectionist, a murderous insurrectionist who was very much interested in the violent expulsion of Rome from Judea, given that choice, he should have known that the crowd would choose the true rebel. 
they would choose the man called Barabbas. They would especially do that if the chief priests are all there stirring them up. Now, people often talk about this too, the fickleness of the crowd. On the one hand, on what we call Palm Sunday, just a few days previous, the crowd hailed Jesus as he who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who brings with him the kingdom of their father David. And then on the other hand, when Pilate asked the crowd, then what do you want me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. That the crowd is exceedingly fickle is one explanation. That Mark is actually writing about two different crowds, or crowds made up of two different types of people, is another and probably better explanation. And the crowd that welcomed Jesus with shouts of praise on Palm Sunday was likely comprised largely of pious pilgrims from places like Galilee, who had themselves journeyed like Jesus and his disciples had to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Pious pilgrims from outside Jerusalem probably didn't spend the mornings of the Passover feast and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread hanging around watching Pilate hold court. As biblical scholar R. Alan Cole put it, pilgrims had more to do at Passover time than to gape at Roman trials. On the other hand, some Jerusalem natives, especially those who are predisposed to advocate for their local anti-Rome hero, Barabbas, they very well might have had time or made the time not only to gape at, but actually to participate in the Roman trial by advocating for Barabbas' release. In the end, though, the people chose exactly what they wanted. The crowd chose exactly what they wanted. And they chose what people all too often want. They wanted a rebel and an insurrectionist who would free them from their Roman shackles through violence. That's what they wanted. That's what they got. Not a king who called them to repentance not a king who called them submit to his holy and righteous rule. Not a king who would free them from the tyranny of sin and death and who would come again as the world's judge in power to put an end to every tyrant forever. They chose what they wanted, and they got it. So we are actually confronted here in this passage with yet another stark reminder of the spiritual blindness that can overcome us. And we're invited to open our eyes, and we're invited to see, to truly see, and to long for God's anointed king, the Christos, as he is, and to receive him on his own terms. He is the suffering servant, son of man of God, the Christ. Not that we aren't commanded to pray for our earthly rulers, the Basileus, the kings, and not that we can't pray for good and just earthly kings who reign in alignment with God's will. We need to pray for our kings. We need to pray for the ones who are kings now, and we need to pray for good ones to rise up. But our deepest longing and, our, and deepest fulfillment is found in God's Messiah, not in the earthly rulers in this age. 
Our deepest longing and our deepest fulfillment is found in God's Messiah as He was and as He is. The Lamb of God who defeated sin and death by His righteous death and who rose again and who is coming again in power and glory. Open our eyes. We're also confronted in this passage again, not just with one trial, but actually again with three trials. Obviously, Jesus is still on trial. That's, that's one of them. We just heard of another trial, the trial of the crowd. They, they actually were tried. And as they shouted crucify him, they were exposed as being guilty. And just as, that's the second one, and as just as the Jewish council had been on trial in the previous passage, Pilate is on trial here. That's the third trial. As our Alan Cole put it, we find here not the trial before Pilate, but the trial of Pilate. For he stands self-revealed as he attempts in vain first to avoid the issue and then to escape responsibility for the decision. But as in the case of Peter, Pilate is pushed inexorably to a verdict, and his verdict is condemned every time that we recite in the creed the clause suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate, of course, could have done the right thing. He could have released the man he knew full well was innocent of that charge, high treason. And he could have executed instead the man who really was murderous and a traitor. But wishing to satisfy the crowd. He had a crowd to satisfy. And the morning was getting on, and man, he had plans for the afternoon. Doing the right thing would create a mess for him. And he's got this mob that's forming here. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas. Pilate is tried, and he is found guilty. You know, in one sense, this is a completely ordinary story. It's a completely ordinary story. It's the story of a petty, spiteful local tyrant filled with a toxic mix of vice and power, an unprincipled ruling elite manipulating the one who holds power to bring to fruition their desires, and a populace clamoring for temporal comfort and power at the expense of true justice. This story has played out over and over and over again in, in the world's history, and it's playing out all over the world now, and it will continue to play out all over the world. But Pilate's name is recited by billions of people on a weekly basis for ha having acted in such a cowardly, gutless, and selfish way, for one act of injustice against his fellow man that was just like all of his other acts of injustice, except for the fact that this one man alone also happened to be the incarnate God who he handed over to be crucified. So as we contemplate these trials, we should also remember that Mark's original audience was a predominantly Gentile audience who was experiencing persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. And in light of that, we should be reminded that Jesus himself, only two chapters previous in Mark's gospel, in chapter 13, had said to his followers, they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, 
to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. This is a reminder to Mark's original audience and to us that whatever persecution we might face, it is not foreign to our own Lord's experience. We suffer not for a king who, who never knew suffering, but for a king who endured it with silent authority. So as we bear faithful witness, think about this. You know who's not there? Not a single one of Jesus' disciples ever shows up to bear witness in any of this. Peter's long gone. Mark ran away naked. Where are the rest? But as we bear faithful witness, we're supposed to learn something from this. As we bear faithful witness to him, wherever we are, and in whatever we endure, whatever level of suffering that that might entail, whether it's a bit of playful ribbing or mockery or a greater extent of social exclusion or the loss of jobs that might accompany an increasingly anti-Christian world, loss of, loss of employment, loss of banking, loss of whatever that might come, or actual martyrdom, we suffer not just for him, but we suffer in and with him and in the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. This, this is an invitation to stand firm as faithful witnesses for our King, the Lamb of God, in the small moments of trial, not, you know, those, those little jokes, those little whatever, the, the, little, the little things that come first, to stand firm as true witnesses, as faithful witnesses of our, our King, the Lamb of God, not in our own power, but in our union with Christ himself who suffered and in the power of his Spirit so that we will stand firm as witnesses of our Lord in the big moments of trial. It's an invitation to stand firm as faithful witnesses. It's an invitation to let your light shine for our Lord, to stand firm, to let your light shine in standing on and in the wondrous love that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for our souls.